Dr. Thomas Ward, who refers to himself as a simple country doctor, is a heroic defender of faith, life, and family. He's engaged in this work for over 40 years. He and his wife Mary, also a doctor, have raised six children of their own and are now blessed with nearly 20 grandchildren. He, with his whole family, met personally with Pope St. John Paul II and was encouraged by the late Pope in his activities defending the family. He founded the National Association of Catholic Families in the UK. He was invited by Pope Benedict to be a corresponding member of the Pontifical Academy for Life. He has organized many pilgrimages to Our Lady of Walsingham, the great Marian shrine in England. When Pope Francis changed the Pontifical Academy for Life to eliminate the pro-life clause and change the Academy's mandate, Dr. Ward was removed from the Pontifical Academy, along with a number of other members who were most close to their heart and thought of Pope St. John Paul II. And without further ado, here is our interview with Dr. Ward, filmed at his home in Suffolk, England. Welcome, Dr. Ward. Thank you very much, and very welcome to England for the, on behalf of all of your many, many readers here who feel deeply grateful to you for your defense of our families. Praise God. And let's begin, as we always do, with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Dr. Ward, you have, uh, over your uh, history, both in the pro-life movement and in working with the church, often studied and talked about revolution, particularly the sexual revolution. Um, and it is it has been for you both as a doctor and as someone involved in defending families, especially in the faith, uh, been uh, a a seat or, or source of much both pain physically for people you've treated, but also pain in terms of the faith and in terms of causing loss of faith. Can you give us some understanding or your understanding of the sexual revolutions and its origins? Well, I'm delighted to try, but I think the first, as you've been, we had a little chat beforehand and I mentioned the word freedom. And I didn't really start my interest, my career, God help me, in this work uh, because of concern, moral concerns, but because of the concern about freedom and the freedom that it was being removed because of effectively a cultural revolution. Um, and at that point in my development, it was my thinking, um, we tried to restore parents' rights. But it became increasingly obvious that the crisis was a spiritual crisis. And we, we, we as a family and as a movement had been deeply uh, uh, encouraged, uh, guided by St. John Paul's teaching on the family, which I think is perhaps the greatest bulwark to the evil revolution which is threatening uh, all of society, indeed all of the world. Um, so if I can start uh, really by quoting John Paul, uh, and uh, if my eyes wander a little, I am actually quoting. In 76, Cardinal Car Carol Vaichila, John Paul to be, 
said, we are now in the face of the greatest historical confrontation humanity has gone through. The greatest historical confrontation. That's really like a cultural confrontation. The final confrontation between the church and the anti-church. So he immediately brings in the church into this confrontation. The gospel and the anti-gospel. And he assures us that this is all, this confrontation is entirely within divine providence. And I think that this has to be the light motif of everything we are doing. Mm -hmm. But the second quotation, before I speak about revolution, would be Sister Lucia of Fatima. And she also has written on the nature of this confrontation between uh, the church and the, the culture of death. And she also says it's within divine providence. And I quote, the final battle between the Lord and the reign of Satan will be about marriage and the family. We're not being narrow by concentrating on the revolution, by making it too specific. It is on marriage and the family. And Sister Lucia said, don't be afraid because anyone who works for the sanctity of marriage and the family will always be fought and opposed in every day, in every way, because this is the decisive issue. Now, note, this is the decisive issue. She's not just saying this is the decisive issue for culture. This is the decisive issue for the church. Didn't she, when she appeared in 1917, already warn us that it was in fact, um, she said, fashions will be introduced that will offend my son very much. Woe to women lacking in modesty. She also said, uh, more people go to hell for sins of the flesh than for any other reason. And that really does put a fine point or focus on what heaven is telling us is Satan's greatest weapon to keep people out of heaven, to, to cast people into hell. Yes, and I think that the, 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 the thinkers of the culture of death are, are very aware of this mm -hmm. because human sexuality is so fundamental to man that if you destroy normal human sexuality, a man is hardly going to be capable of, of continuing uh, as a human being. Mm -hmm. And you can't be a Christian and you can't, uh, unless you're a human being. Absolutely, absolutely. And we've got now a, a situation where we have really a pinnacle in terms of the, the times of human existence, a, 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 a pinnacle of hell, if you will, or a pinnacle of disaster in terms of sexual revolution. We've got a, a lot of people say, you know, oh, times were much worse in the past, much worse in the past. Well, actually, no. If we look at, for instance, just one of the mainstays of the sexual revolution or of hell on earth, you have 
addiction to pornography, and and I'm not talking about hardcore versus softcore, all that nonsense. It's all pornography. It's all mortal sin. And so, uh, to those people who would say, oh, it was much worse in the past, there's actually more sin today than ever in the past. And you can say that very easily by just looking at the number of people today who regularly view pornographies, therefore regularly are in mortal sin, and you compare that, let's say, to when Our Lady first mentioned it in 1917, there's more people, if you will, watching pornography regularly and, and abusing themselves with that today than there are people who were alive in 1917. So it is quite the, the um, situation that we're in, really and truly, uh, as, as Cardinal Kafara, as you mentioned, mentioned, saying that we are in the times of that final confrontation between our Lord and the reign of Satan right now. So give us, if you would, a, a bit of a progression from where you see the sexual revolution uh, beginning in earnest and where we are today. I think one of the key words in what uh, St. John Paul said uh, is the final confrontation, because it's a sequence. It's implicit in that that it's a sequence of confrontations. And I, I think the, the first confrontation that we have to consider is the, is the French Revolution in, in 1789. Now, some would also say the, the Protestant Revolution beforehand, but that's a little bit out of my area of expertise. Uh, but if we consider the French Revolution, I think that one of the greatest thinkers of the French Revolution and of a deep revolution was the Marquis de Sade. And um, in, uh, 80, in 1789, the Bastille was liberated, and one of the, there were very few people in the Bastille, uh, and one of the people that was liberated uh, was uh, the Marquis Alphonse de Sade. And uh, he, espoused the revolution, became a very fervent revolutionary. And I, I want to just, so that I get this right, uh, a list of the, uh, I made a little synopsis of what he advocated. He advocated the total uprooting of Christianity. The total uprooting of Christianity so that other things could follow. But it's a chicken and egg situation. When the other things follow, as we will see when I mention the Frankfurt School, uh, the church is damaged. When the church is damaged, people are damaged. Uh, the church is, as it were, the moral catalyst, the moral pacemaker of the world. And when the pacemaker uh, uh, goes into atrial fibrillation, which is uh, rather what is happening, We've gone from congestive cardiac failure, I may speak as a doctor, to atrial fibrillation, or, or ventricular fibrillation, ventricular fibrillation, then very serious things can happen. And this man, I think he was a genius, the Marquis de Sade. He advocated a total uprooting of Christianity, claiming that blasphemy, theft, homicide, uh, every type of sexual perversion, incest, rape, and sodomy were revolutionary achievements. Hmm. 
seems to be aimed at. Now, if any of your listeners or viewers think this is an overstatement, just let them switch on their television and they'll see that these things now, this has been, this has been accomplished. And he said, and this is vital, and it, it, it is true if you hold a mirror up to it, that these achievements were only considered criminal because of the deceptions of the Catholic Church. Hmm. There is an inverse logic here. In that way, in sense, he is right. So the attack on human sexuality, the attack on the church, the attack on the church is an attack on human sexuality. Mm -hmm. And from my early point of view, it's an attack on freedom, of human freedom. In his novel, 120 Days of Sodom, the said, said that uh, all differences, including sexual, were to be obliterated. Hmm. Now, have we heard that today? I don't know how many genders there are now. It seems an infinite number. In order to bring primordial chaos. Hmm. And we're pretty well there. Indeed, you might say you wanted to make a mess. In his novel, Juliet, a man says, at 10 a.m., dressed as a woman, I want to marry a man. At midday, dressed as a man, I want to marry a homosexual man who's dressed as a woman. <laughs> Here we have the insanity of gender theory. And this was proposed in 1787. <laughs> and it's come to a fruition it's now, like you wouldn't believe. It's come to a fruition. It is insanity. And the poor Marquis de Sade died in an asylum for the insane. Hmm. So I would stay, I would, I would consider the first stage in the modern revolution to be the French Revolution. And I think the greatest thinker was the Marquis de Sade. Hmm. Of course, we have Voltaire and the noble savage. We'll come to that later. Hmm. So that would be my, my first point in answer to you. Amazing. Where, where do we go from there? Where does the sexual revolution progress to? It is a continuity. It, 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 is, a, it is absolutely a continuity of, of ideas. And I, a cleverer person than me might be able to spell out the person who, the people who have been involved in me will be in, in continuity as, as well. But I now want to go to, to 1848. In chapter two of the Communist Manifesto, in which Marx and Engels addressed the abolition of the family. And a key point in the abolition of the family was the education in the home of children. Note, I'm not speaking of home education in a specific sense, as we have more in a modern sense but the education by parents. Uh, I quote, But you say we destroy the most hallowed of relations when we replace home education, that's education in the family, by social education. This bourgeois claptrap about the family and education, about the hallowed correlation of parents and child, 
you know, it's quite interesting that Marx and Engels are speaking about God, the hallowed relationship between the child and the parent. They get it in one. Again, you have to hold the mirror up to it. So the God-given, hallowed right is to be removed by the, by, by the Marxists. And you know, Marxism ends up taking 150 million lives. Culture of death. The next stage, I think, is the October Revolution in 1917, in which the West, in the form of Germany, exported Marxism to the East to become arguably its greatest victims. It comes to mind that in the Soviet Revolution, 200,000 Orthodox priests, monks and nuns were killed. And the vast number of people who died in Ukraine. And Winston Churchill spoke about this and he said, the German generals transported Lenin in a sealed truck like a plague. <laughs> and the plague soon took effect. And I want to mention Alexandra Kolontai, who was the first Soviet People's Commissar for Social Welfare. And this sentence, I think, is pretty definitive of everything we're going to talk about. She said, communist society will take upon itself all the duties involved on the education of the child. The natural family was to be replaced by a great socialist universal family. They rapidly followed divorce legislation, abortion legislation, and the decriminalization of homosexuality, all within three or four years. Mm -hmm. Very, very, very quickly. Also, you have, again, very interesting, Trotsky advocating infant sexuality and the work of various uh, academics such as uh, William Reich and uh, Vera Schmidt and of course Freud. So we even have and, and free love from Freud and infant sexuality. So everything is in place for their final solution that we are experiencing in the West. And this was inside the communist regime? This was inside the communist regime, uh, in, 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 yes, and very early on. <laughs> Amazing. So we have Ma Belle France with the French Revolution. We have the, uh, the Marxist-Soviet Revolution. The disease, the plague that Mr. Churchill spoke about has gone from the West to the East. But I don't think that is the main target. I don't think it ever really was. In 1922, Lenin, still alive, 
frail but alive. Initiated a meeting of experts, of theologians, one might almost say, or anti-theologians, at the Marx-Engels Institute in Moscow to consider why the Bolshevik Revolution had not swept into Europe and America. Now remember, there had been a small revolution in Budapest, a small revolution, a communist revolution in Munich, but they hadn't worked. And uh, these people quite intelligently wanted to know why. And one of the conclusions was that the culture in the West, in particular in Europe and America, that the Judeo-Christian culture, now note I use culture, not necessarily religious practice, mm -hmm. was still too, too strong and had to be destabilized and then destroyed hmm. for the revolution to succeed. And the chosen means was a sexual and cultural revolution which, which would affect man in his, at his deepest being. Um, now, I want to speak about two of the thinkers in this, uh, in this Mark Engels Institute. Very, very briefly, this is a gross, um, this is a, this, these are in telegrams. Willy Munzenberg recommended to the Soviets that intellectuals be organized to make Western civilization stink. That we ourselves would find ourselves disgusting. Hmm. And we do. We are in a situation of being ashamed of our own culture, of our own values, and attacking them, ourselves, our own basic Christian civilization and its cultural values. The second person I want to mention was a gentleman called George Lukacs. And his key idea was revolution and eros, sexual, in sexual instinct to be used as an instrument of destruction. Because remember, to, to impose the revolution, you have to destroy that which there is. I think this is very important in the modern church. If you're imposing a revolution, you have to destroy, make a shambles of everything that there is. When Lenin died from his, his, I think from a stroke in 1924, Stalin came on the scene. And Stalin was not so much a westernizer as Lenin had been, but he was a Slavophile. And he saw things a bit differently. And he regarded these people, uh, these intellectuals, uh, as being revisionists. And he fled very wisely. <laughs> And he fled to Frankfurt and set up what became the Frankfurt School, which really is the beginning of Western cultural Marxism, of a soft revolution. So they moved to Frankfurt 
Uh, these chaps in the sense didn't have very, very good luck in, in, in choosing the dictators that they were going to live under, uh, because one moment Stalin kicked them out and the next minute Hitler kicked them out as well. But I think this was very beneficial to them and to the revolution and the movement that they're the philosophical movement. Because when they left, they fled to America. They went to Harvard, Columbia, Princeton, Berkeley, and they used these hubs of learning to disseminate their thinking. And it affects almost every aspect of Western culture now. They used the commercial media, the vast commercial empire of the United States and its huge academic resources to propagate their, 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 their ideology. And who would have been the, some of those people who got transferred after they were kicked out, I guess first by Hitler, then by Stalin? Who, who were they who actually went, a couple of them even? Uh, when Lenin died, the protection of these people went. And Lukacs and Munzeberg and many others, That's there were 21 of them, okay. fled to Frankfurt. Uh, and a good number of these 21, uh, and I concentrated for the purpose of this interview on these two, yeah. uh, fled to these universities. In this cultural revolution, which is a soft revolution, uh, it, which is much wiser, really, because we have seen from the fall of the Soviet Union that Stalinism didn't work. Uh, I, I remember once we had a, a communist shop steward supervising some Polish workers here before the fall of the wall. I, I said to him, you know, I, I think that all the communists are here and all the, 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 the anti-communists are in your country. And this is a communist shop steward and he said, yes, they are. So we are really living in, 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 in a time of cultural Marxism and this cultural Marxism focused its attack on the family, sexuality, education, the media, pop culture and their intention was the destruction of the family and through the destruction of the family, the destruction of society. <coughs> Um, they pushed pansexualism, Freud's idea of pansexualism, which is totally accepted now. Mm -hmm. Well, not quite, but give it a little time. And they attacked sexual normality. They undermined the role of fathers, of mothers, and the relationship between husband and wife. And they attacked the primary educator. And they attacked, uh, promoted sex education and or sex, sexual indoctrination, indoctrination and homosexual indoctrination, uh, which destroyed chastity and the innocence of, of young people. So, Dr. Ward, we were talking then about the uh, revolutions and coming up toward the sexual revolution, um, and then 
the seeing of that sexual revolution play out in the church and, and perhaps even seeing it uh, into Pope Francis. Where does where we've been so far lead us to in terms of the sexual revolution? I, I think you have to uh, see the impact of the culture on churchmen. And it's important for us to understand the brainwashing, as it were, that is, that is going on. And at this point I want to speak about political correctness, which is really the, the, the child of the Frankfurt School. And it attempts to mold language, to neologisms, to create words, to shape our, our thinking, to conform with cultural Marxism. Mm -hmm. um, and this is profoundly anti-Christian. And it's imposing a deeply anti-Christian morality on society. It's a bit like the witches in Macbeth, fear is foul and foul is fair. <laughs> Political correctness creates new words which become slogans of intimidation. And these words become hate crimes, hmm. the concept of hate crimes. But we must realize that this is not new, because in the time of Tacitus, the Christians were regarded as being people who hated. Hmm. But, you know, what did they hate? They hated people being thrown to the lions. They were diminishing people's abuse. Mm -hmm. So nothing, nothing really is new. They wish us to think that every, all social differences, sexual differences, sexual differences are constructs. And if we don't accept this, we are haters mm -hmm. and are liable to have the police arrive at our door. And you're saying this concept comes not just now, we're, we're all familiar with that concept, but you're saying this originated in the Frankfurt School. I'm saying that this is, yes, the Frankfurt School is not like Stalin and his thugs. Mm -hmm. This is a sort of intellectual thuggery, which in the West has worked very much more, much better uh, through liberalism, which just could not really oppose oppose this. Mm -hmm. uh, and we get people now whispering to one another, and this is true, that uh, I, I don't mind, I, I, for example, I don't mind telling you, my neighbor, that I think a child needs a father and a mother. Mm. People are whispering this. This is a fact. I've seen this. Now, in the West, as if it weren't enough that we had to put up with this re-export re of Marxism, which became cultural Marxism. But we also had to put up with the population lobby. And it's very interesting that there are very deep concepts in common. This is very important because we must remember that Kolontai, the Soviet lady, Desaad, he all spoke about Christianity and sexuality. Mm -hmm. So, 
The first person I would mention is Brock Chisholm, who was the first director of the WHO, uh, World Health Organization. And he wanted sex education imposed, if necessary, by force, hmm. to quote, quote, to eliminate the ways of the elders. Hmm. Here we have United Nations, World Health Organization. But an even better mirror of Alexandra Kollontai, and I'm not saying this lady was a Marxist, but the concept is almost identical. Lady Helen Brooke, who in England was the first uh, to organize setups to provide contraception for underage children mm -hmm. without parental knowledge. Um, she wrote a letter to the Times. I quote, it is now the privilege of the parental state I hope your viewers note this, the parental state. It is now the privilege of the parental state to take major decisions, objective, unemotional. The state weighs up what is best for the child. Mm -hmm. I'm going to develop that a little bit later. We see in the United Nations, the United Nations Committee of the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, that they want uh, adolescents to have contraceptives without parental knowledge or consent. Hmm. But I, John Henry, I want to really underline this, and this is terribly important from the point of view of, the, of freedom, which we're going to come to, that in the West, the removal of parents' rights started with contraception mm -hmm. and then sex education. It started was the separation of the, of, the, of the procreative from the unitive. Mm -hmm. We split these, and they said it has a huge impact on freedom. Because the provision of contraception to underage children has metastasized to, un to include underage abortion, general medical services, school homosexual indoctrination and gender indoctrination. Indeed, we're seeing children having the sex so-called changed against the will of the parents or behind their backs. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess in a way that's very logical because if you have contraception uh, <clears throat> dividing uh, the sexual act from procreation, you then basically have the sexual act uh, uh, as, as a means to pleasure, and that's it. Uh, uh, absolutely, this becomes the chief good. Mm -hmm. it's, it's total hedonism. It's exactly <laughs> what the, the Marquis de Sade wrote about. But I make one point, that the separation of the procreative and unitive, which has caused all of these consequences, has actually caused children to be forcefully separated from the parents when the parents have gone to prison because they have refused to allow children to be indoctrinated in schools. This has happened in Germany. And we must, that I say in parenthesis here, it has always, up until recent times, been the church 
that has defended these things. And I would call as my first witness the Marquis de Sade. So, and I guess that would bring us then to the sexual revolution itself. Uh, this, is, this is the really clever revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has been infinitely more successful than the French Revolution or the, the, the Marxist October Revolution. And this is the so-called 1968 uh, sexual revolution in which the, 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 the slogan was, it is forbidden to forbid, hmm. which is really very logical. It's forbidden to forbid. Uh, its aim was the destruction of all laws and authority in the name of uh, in the name of freedom and unrestrained sexual instinct, and it has been enormously successful. Contraception, cohabitation, adultery, promiscuity, pornography, infidelity. The whole, the whole thing, and of course, we also then roll on to the homosexual revolution and the importance of Kinsey's, uh, the Kinsey report mm-hmm. uh, in nineteen fifty-two, uh, which contributed hugely to the the homosexual revolution. Now, some, some of the I think we should know some of the key thinkers of the 1968 revolution. Mm-hmm. And I start off with Herbert Marcuse, who is in direct continuity because Marcuse was a member of the Frankfurt School. Mm-hmm. And um, in, he joined it in 1933. And Marcuse wrote a book in 55 in which he attempts to reduce Human nature to unrestrained sexual drive. Very much as the, uh, the, the Marx and Engels school was doing initially, using Trotsky, as Trotsky was pushing, pushing for Freud, etc., etc. Um, so what we're seeing is a marriage of the f- of Marx and Freud. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Freud you can see this in the population lobby. Another important uh, thinker in this uh, was Solinsky. Uh, and here we have a very inter- interesting concept, which I would dwell upon. But he wrote uh, in one of his books uh, called Rules for Radicals, he dedicated the book to Lucifer, whom he called the first radical. I find that very, very interesting if we are talking in terms of what Sister Lucia was speaking of, of an apocalyptic struggle. Mm-hmm. He had a huge effect and a destructive effect of the church in America. So we dealt with Marcus, we mentioned Alinsky. And then another very important one was Michel Foucault, who in 1961, and this is terribly important, uh, highlighted the relevance of the thoughts of the Marquis de Sade. Mm. 1961, the Marquis de Sade, in his book, Madness and Civilization. Hmm. 
I used the word insane for the Marquis de Sade. And here is Foucault speaking about madness and civilization. Madness and civilization. Except, Which, correct me if I'm wrong, does he invert the two? No, he calls it madness and civilization, a history of insanity in the age of reason to our present culture. Hmm. What a definition of what we're facing. He also wrote The Order of Things, an, an archaeology. An archaeology of the human sciences, very, very pretentious, which, he can, which is considered to have laid down the conceptual foundation of the gay lobby. Hmm. And he, poor man, died of AIDS. Hmm. But under Foucault's influence, the American writer Judith Butler wrote Gender Trouble, Feminism and the Subversion of Identity, which was one of the first books to elaborate gender theory, hmm. which is the last frontier of, post of the postmodern ideology of the sexual revolution. Utter insanity. Mm -hmm. Many, many millions of Catholic families have fallen prey to this propaganda. Now, this is this sort of run through of the visionaries. You, you mentioned that they have hugely affected the church. H how so? Well, I think that the crisis now taking place in the Vatican is centered on sexuality, marriage, and the family. And this is without precedence in 2000 years, because the church has always protected sexuality, marriage, and the family. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was one of the criticisms of Julian the Apostate. As far back as that. In what year was that? I was in the. A, this would have been about three hundred and fifty. Yeah. It was one of the one of the criticisms, and he wasn't alone. So in reality, nothing has changed, and the said, again, if we use our mirror, is right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The the effect in the church or uh, in the church. I'm going to have you talk about that in a little bit, but it is very interesting because you have this departure now, whereas up till now throughout all of Christian history, this was the main enemy. You, you talked in the beginning about the expressed need of the revolutionaries to destroy the church, to get rid of the church, because that was the um, obstacle, if you will, of the, of the success of the revolution. Absolutely. The, the church is the obstacle. And in our time, modern times, we had Casti Iconobi, we had uh, Romani Viti, we had the magnificent pontificate of John Paul from the point of view of the defense of the family, mm -hmm. giving us familiars consortio, defense of life, Evangelium Viti, the charter of the rights of the family, his heroic uh, defense uh, of families and life, 
against the world population movement in Cairo and Peking. Uh, it, has, it has always really been thus. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that what we're seeing now is, among senior churchmen, is without precedent in 2,000 years. And others are saying this. Mm -hmm. What is happening is completely unique. People have said it's well beyond the Aryan mm -hmm. crisis, and I think it's certainly, as living in a Protestant country, I think it's well beyond the Protestant crisis as well. And do you see in this in this new departure, uh, the the sexual revolution, or that the, the you've described right from the French Revolution on, finally having achieved entrance, if you will, or, or a successful uh, uh, broach into the Catholic Church. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. How so? Can you take us yes. through a few of those well, things? Well, I, I think that the question really has to be asked. We've spoken of three revolutions with the same life motif, the good part. The question has to be asked, is this revolution now in the Catholic Church? Mm -hmm. Is it a revolution in the Catholic Church? And I, I think, you know, I, your viewers have got to make up their minds on this. I rather suspect a good number have already. But um, when I was giving a paper in, in, in Dublin, I challenged the audience to be the jury. And the question is, is there a revolution in the church? And I'd like to call, again, some witnesses. Hmm. I'd like to call a number of the cardinals. I'd like to call Cardinal Walter Casper, whom I have met. And Walter Casper says, Amoris Laetitiae will mark the start of the greatest revolution experienced in the church in 1500 years. Hmm. Hmm. My first witness. My second witness. Your Eminence. Blaise Cardinal Supic. Who said, Amoris Laetitiae is a new paradigm of Catholicity. New paradigm is a revolution, upturning. Mm -hmm. He went on, and thus, the core goal of formal teaching in marriage is accompaniment, not the pursuit of an abstract, isolated set of truths. Hmm. Amazing. We're not going to be over-occupied by truth. He went on, this represents a major shift in our ministerial approach. That is nothing short of revolutionary. Yeah. That is my second witness. My third witness is His, His Eminence Pietro Cardinal Parolin. Amoris Laetitiae is a paradigm change, and the text itself insists on this. Hmm. I might almost call the text as a witness. And then the distinguished Theodore, ex-Cardinal McCarrick, who boasted how he actively helped with the candidature of his friend Cardinal Bergoglio. I quote, 
after a very brilliant man, a very influential man in Rome, said, what about Bergoglio? Does he have a chance? This is very strange. He claimed, this very intelligent man, and he was, that Bergoglio could reform the church. If we gave him five years, he could put it back on target. In five years, he could remake the church over again. Hmm. The interesting question is the targets. Back on target. That's also an interesting question. And our own in England, uh, Cardinal Murphy O'Connor said, four years of Bergoglio would be enough to change things. Each of the witnesses you've called to your to defend your your uh, your take on things happens to be very much on the side of Bergoglio, if you will. Well, uh, you may say that. <laughs> Another witness I'd call is Cardinal Maradiaga himself, a man who's not unknown to control controversy, mm -hmm. uh, who is theoretically Pope's second in command mm -hmm. in governments. And he said the Second Vatican Council, Second Vatican Council, meant an end to the hostilities between the church and modernism. <laughs> so those are my first witnesses. And then I'll call some other witnesses. In, in, indeed, you must forgive me if I'm being rather clerical. Uh, these witnesses would be the very holy Cardinal Cafaro, R.I.P. Cardinal Meisner, IIP, Cardinal Brandmuller, and Cardinal Burke, who asked Pope Francis to clarify his position on the, and that of the Church on matters relating to marriage and the family, the sacraments and eternal life. And it's very easy to forget that everything we are talking about is about the four last things, death, judgment, hell, or heaven. Mm -hmm. We forget that at our peril, and we've vastly forgotten it. That is what the church is for. The church is for eternity, our eternal salvation. <laughs> but as we know, we're still waiting for the answer. And Cardinal Burke has said this has caused a lot of confusion in the church. <laughs> uh, these four also think there's a revolution going on. And Cardinal Muller didn't say there was a revolution, but he implied it when he said, Jesus Christ is my paradigm. <laughs> that suggests there is another paradigm going on. Mm -hmm. Cardinal Muller then, not one of the four formal dubia cardinals that you just mentioned, but the head under Benedict of the uh, excuse me Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, who was unceremoniously removed by Francis um, and, and given actually no other position, uh, amazingly, because that normally doesn't happen, um, and one of the now great defenders of orthodoxy uh, against this new paradigm, if you will. Against yeah. the revolution. Yes, yes. And, and very consistent on humanity. Mm -hmm. Which I think is, is, is terribly, terribly important. But I, I put, I, I called these witnesses 
Uh, I should have called the Marquis de Sade as well. And I, written, I wonder which side he would have been on. But I, I called these witnesses because we're talking of what has been said to be the greatest and final historical confrontation between the church and the anti-church, between the gospel and the anti-gospel. And we have to ask ourselves, is what we are seeing in the church today this phenomenon, this terrible, terrible thing? Yeah. And I, I, I wonder if Cardinal Kafara, who, refer, who referred to, gave us Sister Lucia's warning, did he think? Do you know what He did indeed. In fact, he said it was at the Rome Life Forum uh, a few years ago now, before his death, that he in fact said those words of Sister Lucia to him about that final confrontation or decisive confrontation between Christ, uh, between the reign of, uh, between Christ and the reign of Antichrist was specifically this time and he was referring to the times of the synods on the family which were distorting the uh, truth about the indissolubility of marriage. Well from what you tell me it almost looks as if uh, His Eminence Cardinal Kefara, whom I am old enough to have known as Monsignor mm. Kefara, and a most delightful man, uh, whether Cardinal Kefara was calling Sister Lucia also hmm. as a witness. Mm -hmm. So having called my witnesses in front of this jury, an audience, I then asked the jury to make up their minds on the substance of this revolution. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I divided it into a, a number of, of topics. First of all, marriage. How marriage is being addressed now in very high circles in the Vatican. And the first point I made was that in his flight from Rio in uh, 2013 in the aeroplane interview, which is a terribly important interview in which I think the Holy Father spells out his, his thinking rather, really rather clearly, he made a cryptic, one thing that was cryptic, but significant reference to orthodox marriage discipline, I quote, they follow the theology of what they call economia. They give a second chance. Now, as a Byzantinist, uh, I, I would point out they don't just give a second chance. They actually give a third. So this chance. was the Holy Father talking about so the Orthodox. Of, he was speaking about the Orthodox mm -hmm. position uh, marriage discipline, mm -hmm. and he spoke about economia, in which uh, grace is available to allow people to have a second marriage, right. second attempt. Uh, in fact, I quote, he said a second chance. Right. Uh, but uh, this, uh, uh, I, I can speak as a Byzantinist, this is not entirely true, because the orthodox doctrine, uh, social marriage uh, discipline allows three Hmm. marriages, with one exception. Hmm. Byzantine emperors were allowed four. Emperors of Constantinople were allowed four. Hmm. 
Colonel Burke speaking about this, it was very logical as always, as a great judicial mind. He said that if a person who is living publicly in violation of his or her marriage bond is admitted to the sacraments, and this is very important, then either marriage is not indissoluble, logical, or the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist is not the body of Christ. I just pause to let us think on this. Is marriage indissoluble? Absolutely so. Is is after transubstantiation the body, blood, soul, and divinity? Jesus Christ's presence. This is insanity. On contraception, first thing I want to do with marriage, and then contraception, speaking of marital morality. Uh, in an interview with uh, Father Spadaro, uh, Pope Francis says, we cannot insist only on issues related to abortion, gay marriage, and the use of contraceptive methods. I have not spoken much about these things. Hmm. And in 2017, Pope Francis set up a committee to comprehensively study Humanifiti under uh, Monsignor Marengo. Uh, Monsignor Marengo, in his book, seems to relativize Humanifiti, making it appear as a part of an evolving teaching to be read in the light of Pope Francis's uh, Amoris Laetitia. Mm -hmm. So we see Father Maurizio Chiodi, uh, now a member of the Reformed uh, Pontifical Academy for Life, mm -hmm. perhaps you'd like to mention that in a moment, um, saying uh, that uh, precisely for the sake of responsibility you might require contraception. Yeah. But you know, as a family doctor, uh, I ask myself, how can these people speak in this way? Not willing to talk very much about these issues. How do they realize that the pill has an abortifacient mode of action? Hmm. Uh, it, there's a lot of controversy that, that's raised about that point. Um, different theologians suggest, no, no, really, there's no abortifacient effect. Um, uh, but you, as a doctor, wh where, what have you seen with regard to that? I just think they're ridiculous. An anecdote. patient came to me, <coughs> Catholic lady, and uh, she told me, She'd gone to confession to, uh, I think, a good priest. Mm -hmm. And he said it was all right under her circumstances to use the pill. And she came along to me and said, Doctor, read the data sheet. It says it has one of the modes of action, not all, one of the modes of action might be the, is the prevention of implantation. Mm -hmm. And she said, that's abortion. Well, that upset her terribly, that she might have been having abortions on a monthly basis. Might. 
But what upset her very, very grievously was that this priest had sanctioned this. Mm -hmm. They have destroyed their credibility by doing this. Mm -hmm. And this has also happened in underage girls uh, being advised as well that this is the lesser of the evils. Uh, this is just just nonsense. It has done, done. It has been such a betrayal of our of our young people. Mm -hmm. I, I'd say, with regard to Pope Francis, he's been a little bit more forward, even than just saying we shouldn't speak about it much, and just appointing uh, 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 folks who are pro contraception. He has himself said when he was on the plane um, and was asked about the concept of the lesser of two evils with regard to the use of contraception in places where Zika virus is present, which, as you know, uh, has the possibility of causing some birth defects. Uh, by the way, I believe lesser so than older women becoming pregnant. But when asked about that, he uh, said that it is the lesser of two evils, speaking of abortion being uh, a crime even, but he said preventing birth is lesser of two evils. And then said in certain cases it was allowed uh, raising a case of nuns perhaps being raped in in Africa and uh, that was found to be false nonetheless but um, said it was allowed there and in this case meaning the case in Zika virus it is clear that it's allowable it was so disconcerting for reporters who knew, I mean, even secular reporters who knew something was terribly wrong, they called up Father Lombardi at the Vatican uh, press office to see what indeed the Pope actually meant, because it was so revolutionary what he was saying, and Father Lombardi confirmed that the Pope was indeed speaking about the use of the pill and the condom in grave circumstances. I would say to that that uh, people hear what they like. And many people will interpret that, that if the pill is allowed in grave circumstances, my circumstances are grave. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you will end up with the reality, uh, which I have seen over many years, of over 90% of Catholics thinking contraception is okay. Mm -hmm. Because my circumstances, and we mustn't forget that one of the consequences of the of the acceptance of contraception by parents is contracepting teenagers. Mm -hmm. But I, I would make one point. Perhaps the Pope doesn't know of the abortifacient nature of uh, please God, he doesn't know of this abortifacient nature. But I'd make maybe no, no, two points on this. First of all, it's estimated that there have been between 350 and 750 million chemical abortions in the United States alone since the introduction of the pill. 350 to 750 million chemical abortions. I don't know what the population of the United States is, but I think 750 million is very, very, it must be double the population of, the, of, uh, of America. And if he doesn't understand this and doesn't know this, uh, this is a profound educational failure yeah, on the part of organizations like the, uh, the Pontifical Council of the Family, the, uh, as well as the, 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 the Pontifical Academy for Life, etc., etc. Because in 1926, it was known 
that the administration of the estrogens could have an abortive, could have an abortifacient effect mm -hmm. in 1926. And Pincus himself, who invented the pill, believed that oral progesterone uh, had a, a possible effect on, on implantation. Now, now we're talking of 42 years before Humanae Vitae. Mm -hmm. One really has to ask oneself, in what, at what level of education are these products? Because they have to make moral judgments on the basis of fact. And even if they didn't know that, even if they thought perhaps somehow that, that they didn't have an abortifacient effect, isn't the teaching of the church anyway that contraception by itself, forget about abortion, is an intrinsic evil, therefore can never be done? I, I completely agree with you. I think all of the culture of death is hinged on the separation of the procreative and the unitive. It's so clearly spelt out in Humani Viti. Uh, everything becomes possible. It's like splitting the atom. Everything becomes possible. It is the fundamental error. And I would say, as an old man, that until there is, yes, an ex-cathedra statement on the moral inadmissibility of the separation of the procreative and the unitive, this cascade will continue. Unbelievable. This time in society, we are seeing, uh, you, you, you began on this notion of freedom, that this is what really got you going. Um, you, you mentioned that um, the, we're really seeing an attack on freedom, freedom of parents to educate their children as the primary educator, to protect them indeed from a lot of what's going on in our society. Yet, it seems we're under more pressure like that than perhaps ever before, just in, in society. And yet at the same time, and oh, maybe it's chicken and egg, maybe the reason why we're under so much pressure is also because the church seems to not only have, have given up the fight in a way, but, but seems to be playing along. Well, this is what I put to the jury, uh, that the, the matter of the allegation, contraception, abortion, etc., uh, by the silence, what we've had for 40 years is the silence mm -hmm. that hardly ever contraception was, was mentioned. And people got the Catholics got the idea that contraception was not mentioned because contraception wasn't a bad thing. Indeed, overwhelmingly was a, a good thing. So you couldn't distinguish much. Catholics, contraceptive practice was very little different from non-Catholics. Mm -hmm. So it became, uh, it was fully accepted. And the great danger is that we are not going to crystallize, formalize this appalling behavior in the church to make it formal. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you see uh, this comment uh, 
about the virus, this is, this is disastrous. Mm-hmm. Um, these people, uh, I mean, people, people should abstain in, in this, these, this circumstance. Mm-hmm. It's common sense. If, if a person's HIV positive, there's only one thing to do. You can't risk your wife or your husband's life. There's mm-hmm. only one thing to do. Yeah. To, 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 to abstain. And this is what people should be told. Yeah. But if I can get back to the substance of the allegations um, on abortion, uh, Holy Father said, we cannot insist on issues related to abortion, etc., etc. Uh, insist only on issues. On another occasion, he said to Eugenio Scalfari in La Repubblica, the most serious of the evils that afflict the world these days are youth unemployment and the loneliness of the elderly. Mm-hmm. But to me, the doctor again, it seems very strange that we mustn't speak about so much about abortion. Do the credits not realize that there have been 1.7 billion surgical abortions? of little boys and little girls. Population of India is 1.2 billion. Mm-hmm. We've had 1.7 billion surgical abortions in which we don't get to talk about this, yeah. in which little boys and more often little girls are decapitated, eviscerated and dismembered. Yeah. We're not going to talk about that. Just for some perspective, I think more than all the casualties from all wars combined. Absolutely. That, so we're insane. Not talk, we're not going to talk about it. Yeah. It's, if we didn't talk about, I mean, how the Pope, Pius XII, talked about the war and the killing. But it was small beer. to this appalling cruelty. Population control, another aspect, contraception, abortion, population control. The Pontifical Academy of Science and Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences have endorsed the United Nations proposed sustainable, sustainable development goals. And they include, the goals include access of children to abortion and contraception without parental knowledge. Bishop Sarando, the head of these academies, says, because when you have education, we don't have children. We don't have seven children. We have six in our family. What criminals we are. Not only offending Planned Parenthood and the abortion lobby, we are offending Bishop Sarando. Mm-hmm. We don't have seven children, he goes on. Maybe we have one child, two children, no more. Mm-hmm. On his return from the Philippines, Pope Francis himself noted that population experts advised three children. Mm-hmm. What pressure on large families. Bishop Sarando has been celebrated by Ted's Ted Turner, mm-hmm. 
who is reported to have told journalists he would like to reduce the world's population to by five billion, asking parents to be only have one child for the next hundred years. This is the level of insanity when these people are working in the Vatican. Mm -hmm. It is unimaginable. Yeah. Um, Just for, for people to get an understanding of that, there have been more population, what, what, what we've called, and I think rightfully so, population control conferences at the Vatican under the guise of sustainable development. But there is a veritable parade of population controllers at the Vatican itself, including the father of population control himself, Paul Ehrlich. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Paul Ehrlich would not have been scandalized by Pope Francis saying that Catholics did not need to breed like rabbits. <laughs> exactly. He would have been enthralled. In fact, what he said to us when we interviewed him at LifeSite News, uh, Paul Ehrlich told us that um, he was pleased with the direction Pope Francis was leading the church. It's quite logical. <laughs> Everything we are saying is logical. Whether we hold the mirror up or we look at it straight. Mm -hmm. It depends on your whether you have an inverted logic. Back to the yeah. back to the witches in in Macbeth. Now, what really hit the headlines on this extremely important flight from Rio was when Patricia Zorzan, the journalist said, speaking on behalf of Brazilians, in Brazil a law has been approved which extends the right of abortion and is allowed matrimony between persons of the same sex. He just went to Brazil, Pope Francis. She went on, why didn't you speak about this? Hmm. The Holy Father uh, evaded the answer. I think she had three goes at getting at getting the answer. Indeed, she said, what is the position of your holiness, can you tell us? And he said, that of the church. That was his answer. I, I found that actually, that particular exchange quite amazing because Pope Francis has expressed more than once, this, this interview uh, was the first show of it, but he, he's expressed more than once when being asked to answer specific questions on the church's morality, particularly sexual morality. He's deferred. He won't give the answer. If anything, he'll say, as he did here, uh, I'm, uh, you know, mine is the position of the church, I'm a son of the church, or something like that. But refuses actually to give the teaching. But not only that, he's often said, um, you know, I, I wouldn't want to interfere in another country's politics. Yet it was the same flight uh, where he um, criticized um, President Trump, who then wasn't president, he was in the primaries. And uh, he talked about building walls. Anybody who would build a wall and not a bridge is not a Christian. Um, massive interference in, in, uh, in a country's politics. Um, and yet he felt comfortable to do that, and yet not speak on the issues where the church is actually supposed to speak um, on the issues of morality. Well, there are many examples of this. 
the same Patricius Orzan said, you does your holiness intend to confront the whole question of the gay lobby? And he replied, if someone is gay and is searching for the Lord and has goodwill, then who am I to judge him? Mm -hmm. When he met Juan Carlos Cruz, a Chilean victim of clerical sexual abuse, Cruz says, the Holy Father said, Juan Carlos, that, that you are gay does not matter. God made you like this and loves you like this. I don't care. Pope Francis promoted Cardinal Daniels, who said, I think it's a positive development that states are free to open up civil marriages for gays. On, on the issue of Juan Carlos Cruz, our last show talked to our own correspondent, um, Doug Mainwaring, who himself was in the homosexual lifestyle. Uh, came out of it. And for him, this was such a shock. We were in Rome when, when this statement came out. And he was so taken aback by what Pope Francis had said to Juan Carlos Cruz, especially the fact that the Vatican wouldn't correct it somehow. Because he talked about the grave harm this is doing to Catholics who are same-sex attracted and how much it pains them and scandalizes them who have clung to Christ, left these, this lifestyle, which they know is so harmful for themselves because they lived it, they understand it, they know it better than anyone else. And here is the Pope seemingly to give his blessing to it, to talk about how God made you this way and loves you this way. If you remember also, he uh, embraced not only uh, his, his student, Yayo Grassi, when he came to America, but also Yayo Grassi's homosexual lover, who also came to the audience to meet him. Whether he might not think he's doing so, but by his example, by these words recorded and uncontested by the Vatican, he's indeed promoting homosexuality to the detriment of those who are same-sex attracted, ignoring the fact that it this behavior leads to eternal damnation. Uh, this is undermining heroic, the heroic struggle of good people. It damages them. There are people, many people, who give up this behavior and struggle and struggle and sometimes with great suffering, great suffering. To, to discourage them is, is appalling. But it's not just Pope Francis, because I have previously called Cardinal Casper as a witness of whether or not there's a revolution. But indeed, I could call Cardinal Casper on the matter of the revolution, because he said, if the majority of the people want homosexual unions, the state has a duty to recognize such. Hmm. So I call him twice. <laughs> And that would have been fine under JP2 and Benedict, under whom Casper was really sidelined. If you remember the papacies, especially the end part of the papacy of JP2, and then all throughout all Benedict's reign, Casper was hardly ever heard of because he had been so sidelined. It was like he was, uh, uh, you know, uh, gone and done, done away with. And yet on day three of the papacy of Pope Francis, he talked about 
Cardinal Casper uh, being a, the a theologian who read theology on his knees. Um, so it was incredibly startling, to me anyway, to hear that in, on day three of the papacy. That was, for me, the first recognition of, oh my goodness, something is terribly wrong. Well, absolutely. Uh, I think Cardinal Casper is a very able man. <laughs> Cardinal Supich, when, when told that the bishop, uh, that the bishop, another bishop, would not give Holy Communion to lesbians and homosexuals in same-sex marriages, quote-unquote, answered that that was not his policy. <laughs> And then Pope Francis subsequently named him Archbishop of Chicago. And made him a cardinal as well. Made him a cardinal. Kim uh, Davis' affair is very well known in, in America. Um, you have spoken about y Yayo Grassi, uh, uh, Pope's former student and his homosexual partner. Um, and then, of course, uh, there's the other issue of um, uh, this couple that uh, underwent sex change, sex change operation. Uh, I'm not quite sure of the detail of that. What, do you remember what happened about that? In 2015, uh, the Pope invited this lesbian couple, uh, one of whom had undergone what they call a sex change surgery. She had lopped off her breasts and taken uh, um, hormones to be able to grow facial hair. Um, and the Pope invited uh, this so-called couple to the Vatican. Uh, he called them married and happy. Um, and when we released it in 2015, it was very little believed, even though we had a photo of it. Uh, I presume people thought we had doctored the photo or something. But in 2016, actually, the Pope made reference to this and retold the story himself uh, publicly on the plane in one of his famous uh, in-flight press conferences. So uh, another scandalous situation, in fact, where the Holy Father sort of took sides in the in the pronoun war, if you will. Um, there is, a, a, especially in America, a noted difficulty because do we refer to men who have removed their testicles and, and, and their genitalia and try to make themselves look like women as a woman or do we refer to them as God made them men uh, and we know I mean chromosomally biologically it's obvious what they are who they are who they were created but you know this whole notion of you should be allowed to be whomever you want God's laws don't matter and so there's a there's a war, if you will, on between how do we address these people? Do we call a man a man, or do we give him uh, the the his preferred pronoun of female, she, and do we call him her or whatever? The Pope actually took sides in the pronoun war, and he because he said during that interview on the plane about this woman who he tells the story of her as having changed her sex after the age of 22. Um, he, he says. She who was he, but is now she, or is now her. It, you, this is so unbelievable, and really does show the Pope himself to be a proponent in the sexual revolution. Our Lord said, He made men and women, man. Would leave his parents and cleave to his wife.
two sexes, the sun god. I think that is has greater authority. Mm-hmm. And this is a really a profound point. My own interest for many years has been in the, in the area of uh, parental rights. And in Amoris, the TCA is very, very weak on parental, on parental rights. It does mention parental rights. But in the section on sex education, which is the vital area, uh, there's, there's no mention of, of parental rights uh, and indeed a huge support for sex education. Um, to quote the Italian uh, translation of uh, Amoris Letizia, it's stronger than the English. He says, Si alla educazione sessuale. Si, enthusiasm. The English is more restrained. Mm-hmm. Indeed, the English audience is much more aware of the machinations of the population lobby than the Latin countries, and much more concerned. But is there any mention of the urgent need to defend parents' rights in the, educa- in the critical area of sex education? No. Is there any mention of chastity? No. But in 2014, Pope Francis did mention chastity. And strangely enough, um, at this time of Brexit, in the European Parliament, this was in 2014, and he said, keeping democracy alive in Europe requires avoiding the many globalizing tendencies to dilute reality, namely angelic forms of purity, etc., etc. Not only is it incredible, it's very difficult to, difficult to understand, let alone believe. Um, so what is, you know, when all of this is going on, what is a Catholic parent, perhaps with five children, sending them to a school to do when the parent, the child says, but the teacher told me the Pope wants me to have sex education. Hmm. That is the final marginalization of the parent. By and large, we have found, I speak as someone intimately involved in in, in the parents' movement and thinking, that teachers are against parents, doctors are against parents, the legal system is against parents, priests have hardly ever helped parents. And here we are in a situation of little Jimmy being able to call the Pope against his parents. We've talked a lot about the revolution now and how the revolution has now come right into the church, right into the heart of the church. Uh, As I said, uh, from the evidence that's been presented, even with the Pope himself. So where do we go from here? I, I think counter-revolution. Um, I think enough of this very evil culture of death. Mm-hmm. Sister Lucia said that the final confrontation, and St. John Paul, the final confrontation would be about the family. St. John Paul said the future of humanity, society, and the church depends on the family. So the battle for the family is the battle for 
Holy Mother Church. Mm-hmm. And the victory, the inevitable victory for the family is a victory for the church. And Our Lady has, is crushing Satan's head in this war for the family. It's not something which is going to happen in many years' time. It is happening now. So I, I think that what we must really, we must, we must regain our, our encouragement and enthusiasm, our hope. Mm-hmm. And I, what I would propose is that we now cross the threshold of hope mm. with the saint of the family, St. John Paul, and it would be the best thing possible now to give him the last word on the topic. Before we do that, I think that would be great. I would love you to relate your encounter with John Paul II, what encouraged you. You've been in this battle for over 40 years, I believe it is. Regrettably, yes. <laughs> but <And> you, still. <laughs> you had a very personal encounter with the saint of the family. Would you mind telling us that story? Well, in reality, we had two encounters with him. One when he was dying, but one when he was young. And uh, uh, it was a point in England in which the family, the, the, the primary right of the educator had been restored, uh, albeit for a short period. And uh, a number of friends and colleagues here said that I, I should go and tell the Pope, which was an absolutely absurd idea. I mean, how on earth do you have the clue of how you did this? But we, we bought a Puerto Familial and Trilo Tent and went to Rome. Uh, and many things happened. But we, 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 we did meet the Holy Father. And I'll tell you a little, a little more than I intended to. Um, we went into a, he, he, the whole family was there, six children, and we went into his chapel thinking he would turn up. We, we were going to marry. He was invited to his mass, thinking he'd turn up in twenty minutes. And we walked in, and we nearly walked on top of him. He was kneeling at a prie-dieu, and it, you could feel the prayer. And indeed, I remember hearing an atheist who was invited to mass. And he said this very strange phenomenon, Philippa. And uh, we, we went to Mass and he was coming back. Our youngest, Maria Benedicta, uh, was just a baby. And my wife, to, keep, to entertain her, had let her have empty her handbag. It's a very small chapel. And uh, Pope John Paul was walking down and my wife looked horrified that, that everything was strewn in front of him. And he looked into her eye, and my eye, really just to say, you're in your father's house. Hmm. And this is a key word in all of this struggle, father. And then we were ushered into his, um, his library, and uh, I thought, well, what on earth do you say to him? 
And so I knelt down, kissed his ring, and said to him, I didn't know what to say. I, thought, I said, Holy Father, thank you for protecting our families. And he, for about 10, 15 seconds, he went totally silent and he looked deeply, deeply sad. And then he changed. It was like a thunderstorm and he had a look of rage on his face. And he grabbed my shoulder and said, God bless your activities. It's a very, very remarkable thing. He, he was enraged. And, and indeed, when you see this little clip at the end, you will see the same look of, of anger on mm. his face. And uh, we had a great time with him. He was so kind to everybody, to my wife, a great reverence for mothers and all of the family. And uh, at any rate, he was walking, he was leaving his, um, the library, and he's, it's very strange, because I was looking at his shoes, and suddenly it unrolled. And he walked across the, the library on his own, and again grabbed my elbow, my shoulder, and said, again with a look of rage, God, God bless your activities, but with, with, with anger. And then he stormed out. Hmm. And uh, needless to say, um, our lives were changed. Um, it was evident that he was a great a saint, a mm -hmm. saint of the family, and such a lovely man. And uh, everything has followed. Uh, from that, uh, so that's it's just an anecdote, but it does uh, express his passion for the defence, not just of the family, but of families, and it is families that are going to lead us out of this dark night in society and in the church. Thank you, Dr. Ward, for being with us on this episode of the John Henry Weston Show. And as we close today, we're going to see that clip that Dr. Ward was talking about, about St. John Paul II encouraging families in, in, in the fight for family. And I pray, we pray that you and we might be encouraged once again to fight for the family, especially fathers, to fight for the family. And take that rage, as Dr. Ward calls it, that you will see on the face of John Paul II, and it's raging against sin and for the family. Because with the victory of the family that will come, as we know, through Our Lady, it will be the victory for the Church and thus for society as well. May God bless you. Holy Church of God, you cannot do your mission. You cannot accomplish your mission in the world except through the family and its mission. We are submerged through the sacrament of water and the Holy Spirit 
submerged in the paschal mystery of Christ. In his death and resurrection, we are submerged to find the fullness of life. And the fullness of life we must find in the dimension of the person, but at the same time, in the dimension of the family, a communion of persons which carries and inspires with this novelty of life, the different environments, societies, peoples, cultures, social life, economic life, all this for the family, yes. You have to go to the entire world to tell everyone for the family, not at the expense of the family. Tell everyone for the family, not at the expense of the family. Hello, this is John Henry Weston. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the John Henry Weston Show YouTube channel if you haven't already done so. There you will find all the past episodes and much more. Thanks again for watching, and may God bless you.